Welcome to the CMDA Canada podcast. Today's podcast features a keynote presentation from our 2021 conference, planned by the Edmonton Conference Planning Committee. The presenter, Father Dennis Lemieux, has been a member of Madonna House since 1991 and was ordained a priest in 2004. He currently resides in Cumbermere, Ontario, where he divides his time between teaching, writing, and spiritual direction. With so much chaos surrounding us, it can be challenging to keep our minds on Christ. In his plenary, Father Dennis offers us ancient Christian spiritual disciplines that will help us reclaim our minds and hearts for the Lord. We hope you enjoy the podcast. So it's good to start my talk with what is the keynote scripture of this conference. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk precisely in this talk about the power of God, the power of God to bring salvation. But also, along with that, I want to explore the hidden interior dynamics that any one of us can be caught up in, and in fact, all of us to some degree are caught up in, that most certainly do, can and do, deliver us over to shame. Shame in the gospel and worse yet, the, the great shame of a failure to uphold our faith in the day of trial. And I, I know that talking to this group, I do not need to belabor the fact that the day of trial is upon us, if, if not well advanced. The question of conscience, conscience issues impacting on all of your medical practices is acute and will only become more acute in the immediate days ahead. You all know this far better than I do. I don't need to go into it. So what I'm here to focus on is the hard interior work that's needed for Christians, all Christians who are on the battlefield of the world in any venue, uh, beset with temptations, struggles, afflictions, the relentless pressure that's brought to bear on all of us, healthcare professionals or otherwise, to compromise, to simply compromise our faith in the day of battle. And the truth of the matter is, we have enemies. And the real truth of the matter is, is that the real enemies that we have to fight are not most critically and most seriously the secular culture, um, the government, uh, regulatory bodies that govern your profession. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They, those, they are what they are. Uh, the real enemies are the hidden thoughts of our hearts. The real enemies are those things that live within us that sway us away from our commitment to Christ. We are all of us called to purity of heart in the fullest sense of that word at all times. But especially in these difficult times, we really need to identify what are the areas of less than perfect faith less than perfect discipleship. These are areas that are the fifth column, if you will, 
of the enemy of all of our souls uh, in our ongoing spiritual combat, the enemies within. That's what I'm here to talk about. What are they? How might they be impacting your life right now? And how do you, how do you go about defeating them? So we're helped in this necessary work by our, our deep Christian tradition. We have a lot of wisdom that's been accumulated over 2,000 years, both in how to recognize and how to address these matters. And it's my great pleasure, frankly, to be able to present to you a, a, a schema uh, by which to understand, in a very broad sense, all the different ways that Christians can go wrong. And not just Christians, but any human being can go wrong. The, the various, uh, if you can put it this way, species of darnel, the various breeds of darnel that can be planted by the enemy to choke out the wheat of the gospel, so to speak. What are they? And I'm going to present a way of prayer based on the word of God that is, in a certain sense, our ongoing weeding of the garden of our hearts and our ongoing planting and replanting and sowing and re-sowing of the garden of our hearts, the interior garden. So this is what I'm what we're about. I'm going to specifically be putting this in the context of of healthcare professionals and the struggle right now to maintain the very serious commitment of, of freedom of conscience and conscience decisions in your professional lives right now. So let us begin. So in the fourth century, a monk of the Egyptian desert, one of the so-called desert fathers that some of you may have had some familiarity with, a monk named Evagrius Ponticus uh, developed a schema of what he termed logismi. Logismi, Greek word, roughly translatable as thoughts. Thoughts. Underlying attitudes of mind and heart, which you can think of as being the basic belief systems that are common to all human beings that individually and together form sort of an anti-gospel, uh, an, uh, an alternative vision of life, an alternative vision of happiness. And these eight logismi are the principal interior opponents to the action of the Holy Spirit in our lives. They're indwelling belief systems. So in themselves, uh, they're not sins uh, until, we, until we choose to act on them, until we choose to believe them, until we choose to make them indeed the way of life that we're pursuing. So I'm going to put a slide up on the screen with, with the eight Logismi of Evagrius of Ponticus. So, each of these thoughts gives us, in a sense, an alternative way to beatitude. Besides that, given by our faith, 
Our faith, of course, tells us that happiness, our happiness lies in God alone. God, who is the life of our souls and entering into a living communion with God through, with, and in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is happiness. This is happiness. So, of course, our fallen human nature has all sorts of other ideas under that heading. So on this slide, I show the eight thoughts expressed, Charlie Brown style, if you will, in as happiness is statements. And these thoughts are in the traditional order they've been presented in, in our tradition. Gluttony, lust, avarice, anger, despondency, acedia, I'll say more about that, maybe perhaps unfamiliar word a little bit later, vainglory, and pride. So those in the assembly, those listening to me who are Catholic or from uh, Catholic-adjacent Christian traditions may recognize in this list a a rather strong similarity to another list that's very familiar to us of the seven capital sins, the seven root sins of our tradition. And in fact, this list from Evagrius Ponticus is the original list. This is the list that was originally adapted, and it's far outside the scope of this talk to explain the historical process by which the eight thoughts of Evagrius Ponticus became the seven capital or seven deadly sins of the Roman Catholic tradition. Anyways, so the main point I want to make is that insofar as any of those eight thoughts, which you also have them on a handout, by the way, the material I just had there, and any of the eight thoughts Well, our thoughts that we're thinking insofar as we genuinely believe that happiness is material security or that happiness is mastery pride, happiness is being the boss or happiness is getting my own way so that I'm really sad whenever I don't get my own way, despondency. Insofar as we believe any of that stuff, Well, we're sitting ducks. We're sitting ducks to the attacks of the evil one and the howling winds and the shifting sands of our ever-changing cultural norms and all the pressures that those bring to bear on us. So that's the basic doctrine. So Evagrius did not, thank you, Evagrius, simply throw a list of disordered thoughts at us and just leave us to wrestle with them on our own. Good luck with that. But Evagrius also lays out a system of prayer to counter them. And this system of prayer is intensely based on meditating on the Word of God. It is a system of Lexio Divina, of sustained, concentrated meditation, pondering, praying with Scripture, deliberately aiming relevant scriptural passages like arrows at these thoughts. And that, in turn, united to a whole way of life based on the Word of God. A whole way of life of meditating deeply and acting boldly on God's Word to transform and purify and correct and eradicate all the erroneous words, all the nonsense that we all carry within us. So this method of prayer I'm going to lay out for you in brief is termed anti-retical prayer. Think of the word rhetoric 
for the spelling of that, anti-retical prayer, which is essentially a matter of putting one word in place of another, countering the foolish thoughts of man with the thoughts of God as found in his sacred word. So those of you who are psychologically trained may recognize this as being, well, that's cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, you're darn right it is. It's cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, 4th century Egyptian desert style. And uh, we have 2,000 years of, of good evidence that this really does work. It really is helpful. So if I had all the time in the world, I would go through all eight thoughts with you and I would show in full the extent of their presence in our lives and how each of them may impact us in a wide variety of ways. And I'd give you a full program of scripture study and prayer and, and, and uh, Christian discipleship to counter them. And in fact, I gave you all a handout, which you should have had in your, in your package, of, with just such a thing such a program of texts and related actions to counter each talk. But for this talk, I want to focus on three of the thoughts that I think are, a, are of particular relevance to you in the specific battle of conscience rights in the medical field. I'm going to focus on the three logismi that I think are most likely to make a man or woman of strong Christian principle crack. Crack under the pressure, the strong pressure to violate what we know to be true and right. And so those three thoughts are avarice, vainglory, and acedia. So in the time I have left, I'm going to give a brief account of each one, very brief, show, if need be, how these impinge on these issues, and give some basic patterns of scriptural prayer that are anti-retical in nature by way of illustration. This is an illustrative way, kind of a, uh, you know, so it's anti-retical prayer, anti-retical therapy, rather, if you would put it, want to put it that way. I'm not using it off-label. I'm not prescribing it off-label, but according to the best clinical practice. Let us begin. Avarice. Avarice, which is the thought that happiness consists in material security. Not, this is not the thought, note bene, that material security is a good thing, or, you know, that just generally it's good to have stuff. Um, it's not the thought that we have to be prudent stewards of the goods that are entrusted to us. That's Those are true. Those are true thoughts. Avarice is the thought that our very happiness consists on having all of our ducks lined up financially, and that it is the tragedy of our lives to be in a position of material insecurity, financial risk, or worse yet, actual poverty. This is, this is misery, 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 you know? So avarice is not necessarily, as we might think of the word as being, it's not necessarily a matter of of insane hoarding or miserly penny pinching. It's, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge or Smog the Dragon from The Hobbit or whatever. Uh, it might be, but it's not necessarily. It's rather the overriding conviction that my quality of life depends, depends on the amount of material goods I possess. Well, you can see how that choking fear 
that avarice is can induce terrible pressures on you, on all of us, but on all of you as you face potential or actual consequences for refusing to refer for maid or any other lines in the sand that you, you must draw. And the hard reality is that while we all have to fight, we all have to fight the good fight, fight as hard as we can to protect the conscience rights of physicians and other health care workers, let's be realistic. There's a very strong chance that we're going to lose the fight. And there's a very strong chance that every one of your bottom lines, your, your income, your financial security, and worse yet, financial security of your family, your dependents, it may be negatively impacted, possibly severely, by, by, by all of this, this, this horror, terrible struggle we're in. And so if the thought of avarice is flourishing in the hidden places of your mind and heart, well, what's already a very hard position to be in, and there's no joking about it, becomes all that much harder. Because if, if you're living under the bondage of avarice, then to be impoverished is the worst thing in the world that can happen to you. Right? Ah, so this calls for anti-reticle therapy. Uh, as the handout will show you, there's no shortage of scriptures against avarice. It's one of the major themes of the gospel, actually. Parable of the rich fool, the rich man and Lazarus, Christ's own words of having nowhere to lay his head. Uh, Blessed are the poor. Go sell all you possess if you want to be perfect. So on and so forth. But the gospel of all gospels against avarice is, of course, Matthew 6, 24 to 34, the famous lilies of the field passage. I won't read it all in, in the interest of time. I won't read it. We'll just leave it on the, on the screen for a minute or two. But do not worry. Do not worry about your life. Do not worry about what you're eating or drinking or where you're going to live. Or It's the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And your Father in heaven knows. Your Father in heaven knows you need all these things. So now, of course, anti-reticle therapy is not simply a matter of reading the passage and saying, yep, yep, that's what it says, all right, and then going on about your business. Uh, proper use of Scripture, Scripture as medicine, Scripture as therapy against disordered thoughts, takes a little more time, a little more effort, a little more pondering. I always like the image of working the word of God into our hearts the way a baker will work yeast into bread dough. I love, I'm a baker. I love baking. It's one of my favorite things to do. You got to work the yeast into the dough. You got to work God's word into your heart, into your mind. Or rubbing a lotion onto skin. You've got to work it in. You got to work it in got to work it into those deep places in the heart where you might uh, you might not quite believe it just yet my father in heaven knows what i need my father in heaven knows what i need do not worry do not worry you got to you got to repeat it Repeat as necessary.
Work it in. The seed in the ground, you got to plant it deep. Thinking about it, meditating on it, returning to it frequently. And in the moment of trial, in the moment of crisis, when you may be having to make really hard choices about your professional life, have arm yourself with the word of God. If avarice is a real problem in your life, if financial worries beset you deeply, rob you of peace, you got to make a project of it. You got to make a real project of it. What do you believe? Do you believe in the word of God? Do you put your faith in the word of God? Only by constant recourse to God's word can avarice be replaced by its opposite, which is childlike trust. And then if you get fired for taking a hard position, well, it's not exactly fun, but honestly, it's not the end of the world either. There's far worse things. Better to lose your life and save your soul. Vainglory. <clears throat> Vainglory. Thought number two. This is the thought that happiness is being well thought of by other people. Happiness is the good opinion of others. Happiness is being well-liked, well-respected, well-regarded. Well, I think this is a powerful one. I think this is one of the most powerful thoughts, period. And maybe, especially when it comes to matters of conscience and the struggle to obey our conscience and follow our conscience no matter what, I think the, the struggle with vainglory is one of the most fierce struggles. We all want to be respected, we, we all want to be liked. I, I hope when you're listening to this talk, you like me. You, I'll be very, very sad if you don't. And, uh, and I know very well uh, from my priestly ministry, I know in the medical field, it's kind of important to have a good professional reputation. It's kind of good, not, not just good, it's actually important to have the support and the friendship of your colleagues in how you move as a medical professional. I, I know it's, uh, it's, it's no small matter. It's, it's, it's not trivial. I was just talking recently to two doctors of my very close acquaintance, both of whom are facing, well, the same choices everyone else is facing, very hard choices around MAID and, and other bioethical bio issues. Um, and neither of them, as a matter of fact, knew that I was in the process of preparing this talk and they both independently, without any prompting from me, brought up how important a good professional reputation is, how much doctors rely in their practice on the good opinion of their colleagues, and how on the most basic human level, it is hard, hard, hard to face the prospect of losing that good opinion. So vainglory, which, you know, we can think of it Vanity, oh, you're so vain, you're so vain. I bet you think this song is about you. <laughs> Vainglory is not necessarily the need to be the center of attention. You know, bride at every wedding, corpse at every funeral. It's not necessarily narcissism. It's not necessarily this narcissistic need for constant ego stroking. It can simply be the desire to be approved of by others. This goes deep in the human person. It goes deep, and it can be one of the hardest, generally speaking, of the eight logismi to be free of, actually. I think, it's, I think that's because there's a profound truth in, in, at the heart of vainglory, which itself is a lie, but there's a truth at the heart. The hardest lies to counter are the lies that are partially true, right? Um, 
I think it is because we are made to receive the value of our person. We are made to receive the value of our life, not from our own reckoning, but from another, from that of another. In a very sense, we are made by God to stand under judgment. We are made by God to stand under judgment. And there's something deep in us that wants this, because it's true. And of course, the tragic error of vainglory is that we seek that judgment from flesh and blood and not from the other, or <laughs> point to the icon there, the other, the one who is the merciful judge of heaven and earth and of all living creatures. And of course, vainglory is one of the great drivers of moral compromise in human life. We all want to be one of the crowd. Pretty much from our preschool days onwards, we, we can identify. And we've all seen it. We've all lived it, probably, that we can get ourselves into all sorts of moral messes rather than lose face, rather than lose popularity, rather than lose friends. We can, we can all think of a dozen examples, probably either from our life or the life of those near and dear to us, where this relentless desire to be well thought of and well liked and et cetera, et cetera, can get us into a whole world of moral trouble. It's, it's as common, it's, it's, as, it's one of the most common human stories there is. And of course, for all of us, for all of you, this is a pressing, pressing matter that impacts the very hard conscience stands that you're faced with. So what does the Word of God have to say about vainglory? Well, there's many things. And again, I gave you a whole bunch of scriptures. The one I want to focus on is not one of the more obvious ones, but I think it's one of the most important. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. It's so short that it's not worth putting up on a slide, so no slide. The meek. Why is that all about vainglory? Well, the meek in Greek, the word is uh, prais, he prois. Makari he prois, he prais, which is in turn, that is the Greek rendering of a Hebrew word that's very important in the Old Testament. It's the word anawim, the anawim or anavim. Um, very important word in biblical theology. The anawim of the Old Testament, the plais, the meek, they're the lowly ones. They are the lowly ones. They're the ones without any social status. They are materially the poor, but they're more importantly, they're the ones at the bottom of the social, they're the ones at the bottom of the ladder, the bottom of society, the dregs, the dregs of society, the on a whim. And in the Old Testament, you can track that word right through the Old Testament. And you see that God has a very special regard for the on a whim. They're the ones who end up being left in the land. The remnant, after all the rich and the powerful and the elites, get carted off to Babylon. Uh, and the Lord here tells us that these are the blessed ones. Who will inherit the earth? Well, there you go. Historical resonance with the history of Israel. 
And this is so important for us, and I include myself in this. For we who are among the educated and professional class of our society, we who would be considered in some regard the elite, more or less, well, we got to take this to heart. The Lord does not say, blessed are the top dogs. The Lord does not say, blessed are the elite. Blessed are the rich and the powerful. Blessed, you know, he doesn't, no, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the anawim. Blessed are the lowly ones. We have to take this to heart. Because especially if you are faced with losing status, losing your position as a respected medical professional, and I know it's no joke, or at the very least being very diminished in that position, rejoice and be glad, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the lowly, Blessed are the disrespected. Blessed are the losers. <laughs> losers. Blessed are the losers, the derided, the rejected, the ones held in contempt. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessing upon blessing. But we have to believe it, don't we? That's the, <laughs> that's the kicker. You got to believe it. You got to believe that that's true in the day of trial. When you have to take that hard stand, you have to believe that God's opinion is the only opinion that matters. And his opinion is made very clear in the gospel. We have to take it deeply to heart, so deeply to heart. Again, work it in, work it in. Get that yeast in there to those deep places in the heart where we might want all sorts of other things. We might want all sorts of other things including to be respected and liked. Blessed are the meek. Finally, and keeping it real short because of time, we keep on keeping a good eye on the time here, the thought of acedia. There's no English word that corresponds exactly to acedia because acedia is the thought that happiness is not, <laughs> basically. Uh, there is no, there ain't no such thing. There is no such thing. So despair, maybe, futility, discouragement, uh, happiness, I say, I say happiness is oblivion. Happiness is to just lie, lay down and die because there is no happiness. Uh, a certain habit of mind, a certain habit of being that enervates us, that makes any effort to any difficult thing impossible. We, we just don't have, we don't have the gas in the tank. The, 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 the question that Acedia is constantly posing to us is, what's the use? What's the use? That's the official motto of Acedia. Or, why bother? Why bother? And Acedia can creep into all of our minds and hearts. There are very few people who live a life untouched by the struggle with acedia. It's, it's the, it's the quack grass of the spiritual life. It just grows like, it grows like a weed. And as soon as you pull out one, one blade, another one pops up. It's, it's all, it's all over the place. I'm a baker. I'm also a gardener. So I just use those images. Why bother? 
So you go to pray and the little voice says, oh, why bother praying? What good does it do? You go to try to do some good work or other and a little voice pops in and says, oh, what good work? What good is this going to do? You're trying to get to church after a year of hardly getting to get to church. And the little voice says, why bother? What, what, what's the point of going to church anyway? And who cares? And why, 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 why? You're trying to do a little bit of fasting. You're trying to do something, anything. Why bother? What good is it? Doesn't do any good. Just quit. Don't bother. Let he who is without a trace of acedia throw the first digital stone at me. Because <laughs> I can tell you, this is a familiar struggle in my own life. So in the field of conscience and health stands, acedia is a major problem that afflicts us, all of us. It's so easy to want to throw in the towel. It's so easy to become so beaten down and discouraged by this struggle that just goes on and on and on, that healthcare is just going to go in this direction willy-nilly and the government's going to force us all. And rah, 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 rah. It's just so easy to just become very certain that the battle's been lost. Healthcare, that all of our brave stands are going to do nothing but get us fired. Acedia raises its head and says, well, why bother them? And even if avarice and vainglory have been overcome, even if you are so blessed, this little voice, this little voice of futility and discouragement is a powerful one. It's a powerful one. Monks in the desert called it the noonday devil because it would afflict the monk right in the heat of the day, the heat of the desert sun, and just tell them, just give up. This is too hard. You're just, you're just flesh and blood. What are you doing? So how do we pray with Scripture against acedia? We pray with Scripture against acedia by praying with Scripture, period. Because the entire Word of God is, an, is a tract against acedia, in a sense. The whole Bible, our whole Christian religion, really, is one great clarion cry against precisely this line of thought. Why bother? Because God is alive and active. Why bother? Because Christ died for our sins and rose again to save us. Why bother? Because the world is dying to hear the good news. And if they don't hear it from us, they're not going to hear it. And everything else we read in God's word, everything else that we do believe in our hearts, we do. So I give a wide variety of passages, and I make it very clear in the handout that it's all of, all of Scripture reading is a medicine against acedia but one of my favorite anti anti acedia passages is good old familiar to us all john 3 16 that god so loved the world that he gave his only son that all who believe in him may not perish but may have eternal life that's what we're fighting for that's what we're fighting for not that this bill gets passed or that bill doesn't get passed or that this policy be enacted or that that policy be blocked. All of that's well and good. And hey, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight, my brothers and sisters. But what we're fighting for is far more important. What we're fighting for is eternal life. We're fighting for eternal life. Not only our own eternal life, but the life of the world. We're fighting for souls. 
and we need to hold on. We need to hold on to that, to that scripture and the truth therein with every grip of strength that we possess. And with that, I can see from my little counter on top of my screen that I am out of time. So much more I could say, but I'll have to leave the rest for discussion and whatnot. So thank you very much for your, for your listening and attention. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the CMDA Canada podcast. Watch for more content in this space coming soon.